Welcome to the Geneva Center for Security Policy podcast. I'm Ashley Mueller. This week's episode explores some of the latest global issues affecting peace, security, and international cooperation. The Vassinar arrangement was created to promote regional and international security and stability by adding export controls on conventional arms and dual-use goods and technologies. We discuss its functions with Ambassador Philip Griffiths, head of the Secretariat of the Vassinar Arrangement. And as decisions by global leaders have the potential to leave us questioning legal dimensions, we discuss the role of a legal advisor with former Judge Advocate General of the Canadian Armed Forces, retired Major General Blaise Cathcart. Ambassador Philip Griffiths, thank you for joining us. You are the Executive Secretary of the Vassinar Arrangement. Can you explain how and why this export control regime was established and what it does? The Vassana Arrangement is uh, an intergovernmental information sharing and standard setting forum for the purpose of promoting responsibility and transparency in international transfers of conventional arms and sensitive dual-use goods and technologies. It arose out of the former Coordinating Committee for Multilateral Export Controls, which existed from 1950 to 1994. After the end of the Cold War, there was an initiative to find a new um, forum that would look at export controls on a global basis uh, to replace the old East-West focus, which was considered no longer appropriate. And the search for a new forum took a couple of years and culminated in a declaration which was issued in Wassenaar, which is a suburb of The Hague in the Netherlands, in December 1995. And that explains the origin of the name. The, the Vassana arrangement itself then became operational in 1996 with its seat in Vienna at the invitation of the Austrian government. And all the meetings uh, since, except for one, have been held in Vienna, uh, where the small permanent secretariat is based. There are, I would say, three um, main streams of work. One is agreeing collectively on the items that should require an export um, license at the national level. And a great deal of effort is invested each year in ensuring that the Vassana arrangement control lists are kept up to date and relevant. The second area is uh, information sharing, both a, a general and a specific nature. For example, on transfer risks associated with um, conventional arms exports in different parts of the world, as well as national reporting of certain transfers and denials of exports uh, to countries outside the Vassana arrangement. And the third strand of work, um, as I see it, is agreeing on best practices, guidelines, elements and procedures to guide national implementation of export controls. Bearing in mind that national implementation is, of course, um, um, a national pr prerogative. The Vassana participating states agree on certain standards, but they take uh, all licensing decisions are taken at the national level. You've contributed to GCSP's professional training courses on implementation of the Arms Trade Treaty. What are the relationships between the Vassana Arrangement and the Arms Trade Treaty? The Vassana Arrangement and the Arms Trade Treaty have different histories and take different forms, but they share similarities of purpose. Both seek to promote the highest possible common standards for international transfers of conventional arms, 
while not impeding legitimate trade. The Wassenaar Arrangement's focus is on promoting transparency and responsibility in licit transfers in order to prevent destabilizing accumulations um, of conventional arms as well as their acquisition by terrorists. The Arms Trade Treaty seeks to stop the illicit trade in conventional arms and their diversion to unauthorized end users or end uses, including in the Commission of Terrorist Acts. So both seek, uh, both the Wassenaar Arrangement and the Arms Trade Treaty seek to contribute to international security and stability by strengthening multilateral cooperation and confidence building among states. There are um, areas of difference. For example, the Wassenaar Arrangement represents a political commitment and works by consensus. The Arms Trade Treaty is, is obviously a treaty-based organization. The Wassenaar Arrangement covers not only exports of conventional arms, but also dual-use goods and technologies. Um, and the arms covered by the Wassenaar Arrangement constitute a broader spectrum than is envisaged in the ATT. I think um, despite their, their differences, the goals of the Arms Trade Treaty and the Wassenaar Arrangement are aligned. And Wassenaar Arrangement participating states are very open to sharing their experience and expertise with other countries. Um, including those countries that are seeking to meet their ATT commitments. The Wassenaar Arrangement has an active outreach program uh, with the aim of helping other countries to, to strengthen their export control systems and Wassenaar Arrangement participating states are also active both nationally and regionally in um, export control related in providing advice and assistance in that area. Sometimes developing countries accuse industrialized countries of preventing their access to new technologies that could help their development. What is your response to this? The Wassenaar Arrangement makes clear, uh, this has been clear since its foundation, that it is not directed against any state or group of states and that its work does not um, impede bona fide civil transactions. I think the Wassenaar Arrangement participating states go to considerable lengths in this respect. For example, it's reflected in their work on the control lists where um, the te technical specifications are set very precisely so as to subject on only items of specific security concern to export licensing while allowing other items to be traded freely. And it should be remembered that export control does not mean that the export of an item is prohibited. It means um, only that it requires a license issued by the competent national authority before being transferred. I think, I think it's fair to say that the role of export controls in supporting international security, from which all states benefit, is increasingly widely accepted by the international community. I think UN Security Council Resolution 1540 and more recently the Arms Trade Treaty have played an important role in this respect. All countries benefit when items of security concern do not fall into the wrong hands, including those of terrorists, and are not used to undermine regional and international stability. And in terms of economic interests, I think more and more countries are seeing the benefits of having an effective national export control system in terms of facilitating trade, including their access to sensitive imports, enhancing their access to imports as well as to foreign direct investment. 
I think going back to the, the Vassana Arrangement and the Arms Trade Treaty, the Vassana Arrangement has, over the last 20, more than 20 years, has built up a lot of a solid body of work, most of which is available on the Vassana Arrangement website and is accessible to any other country or industry for that matter that is interested in, in strengthening its export control systems. For their part, I think the Vassana Arrangement participating states will need to continue to use the Vassana Arrangement to further develop export control standards and enhance their implementation, thereby seeking to provide a lead um, by example to, to the broader international community. Earlier, Mr. Tobias Vessner, Head of Security and Law at the GCSP, had the opportunity to speak with retired Major General Blaise Cathcart, former Judge Advocate General of the Canadian Armed Forces. They speak about the role of a legal advisor. Major General, thank you very much for being here. Um, he has tremendous experience in operational law, military law, peace operations, uh, etc. So if I may ask, Major General, what what is the role of the legal advisor? Yes, well first, thank you very much, Tobias, for the kind invitation to, to engage in this con very important conversation. Great to be here in Switzerland and at the GCSP. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a very fundamental and important issue to, to have people understand what is the role of a legal advisor. Uh, a lot of folks, certainly in Canada, and I think it's repeated around the world in my experience, uh, often are a little bit confused to say, well, why would the military or government for military matters, why would they need a legal advisor? You just do your business. Well, it's, it's, it's completely the opposite. If you don't have a legal advisor, you know, decision makers have put themselves in high risk of creating uh, very bad situations in, in any event, whether it's a peacekeeping operation, an actual armed conflict, or just domestic issues as well. In Canada, there are different models, obviously, just like everything else around the world, and, and different countries have different models. Uh, in Canada, as a Judge Advocate General, I had two major roles that were assigned to me by Parliament. One is to provide uh, military law advice to uh, government, the, the uh, Minister of National Defence and the Chief of Def Defence Staff in particular. Uh, I also was the superintendent of the administration of our military justice system, which was Canada's other justice system besides our criminal, civilian criminal law system. So those are two very heavy key roles. But more importantly, it's, it's just the reality of today's complex environments that uh, governments have to work in and make very tough decisions, uh, particularly as we'll, we'll probably focus on uh, you know, operational type issues. Uh, very complex, the interaction of international law, your own domestic law. Uh, you, if you don't have a legal advisor there to help you along the way, uh, you put, again, you put yourself in a very significant high risk of making a serious mistakes that ultimately could lead to loss of lives, not only your own people, young, younger men and women, Canadian men and women uniform, but those around the world that you might send Canadian Armed Forces to use deadly force against. Interesting, but does that mean that basically you're just a legal lexicon like an encyclopedia and you have some legal answers and legal options? Or is there something else to it like you have some elements you also have to push for or should push for like the respect of rule of law, the respect of international law uh, or any other foreign policy or domestic uh, pol politics uh, policy issues? Uh, how's that? Yeah, well, it, it has to be. You, you can't simply be um, what I would say, you know, an automaton or a robot that they could re easily replace you with, simply say, here's my legal question, here's the legal answer spit out. That is not what uh, and decision makers really want in the modern world anyway. They need legal advisors. And in the case of Canada, as example, I was a member, an actual member of the military as well. I held the rank, as you said, when I retired Major General. Uh, so in Canada, we had, uh, you know, the unique uh, position within the military of having two professions. One as a member of the military or a member of the profession of arms, 
and all that entails to understand what is you know, to the application of force and what's the history of, of using that within Canada and around the world. But also I was a member of the legal profession. What does that mean? It means I had professional responsibility. I was, remember, I was a member of a professional society that would hold me uh, accountable for my legal advice in addition to the government itself. So that creates this sense of seriousness and gravity. And when you combine that with um, the realities, like I said earlier, of the very complex environment we operate in, you must have a legal advisor who is uh, fully conversant with the business of, I'll use the term client. In this case, it's the military command. What is it they do? That's why we are in uniform. We become go through basic training, we understand the military jargon, we understand military operations. Uh, that is critical to understanding what type of legal advice to advise in the context. Also, in a real world, it's critical to developing the trust and relationship. It gives credibility to a legal advisor when they've sort of done the exact same things in terms of understanding the operations or participating in operation as the military operators do. So you absolutely cannot be simply uh, someone that you sit behind your desk and they provide you with a, a written question and you give a written answer. That can happen, does happen sometimes. That's the way people want to run their system. But I think, again, it goes back to my comment that you're putting your, your serious decisions at significant risk uh, of, not, uh, of not understanding. So we went to great pains in Canada to make sure all of our, starting with me when I joined the military in 1990 as a young legal officer, training them not only in the law and their, and their competencies, but understanding the complexities of the military and the wider political um, and diplomatic goals of government. Interesting, but but so you're talking of confidence, of trust. You're you're, but you're also talking of you're, you're within it's it's legal advice within uh, the organization. But but in the end, still, when push comes to shove, it's about speaking law to power, right? Yeah. Uh, and I, I guess that is not always obvious because the interests may not be per se what the law says or what is what the law provides. So so how do you see that speaking law to power? What are the inherent challenges? What, what were challenges you had so much experience from at every echelon of tactical, operational, strategic, political level? What challenges do you have? You can imagine there's many challenges. Um, in, in, in militaries, uh, professional militaries, um, you know, they spend a great amount of time and resources to develop strong leaders, whether they be uh, Army, Air Force, Naval Service, or Special Forces. There's a reason for that. They need professionals because ultimately uh, you're putting uh, the nation's you know, treasured blood, the young men and women of your nation, uh, in their hands to decide, in the, in the worst case scenarios, uh, life and death decisions. So they need to be strong-willed people. Uh, obviously, don't always have a lot of time either to, to debate issues, uh, as you might do in, a, in an academic environment. Uh, so they need advisors, not only legal advisors, other political advisors who also have that same mentality, that they will be willing and able to enter the discussions, understand the discussions. As I said, if you don't, if you don't understand the operational planning process or the, or the acronyms, even those things, uh, you'll be basically isolated and not very useful to the commander or decision maker. So, but once you're inside and you know their business, then you also have to say at times clearly, uh, whoa, let's, let's slow this down. We've got to reconsider things. Your goal is obviously to help the commander achieve operational success. Uh, everything leads to that. Um, but in that process, the law has to be very prominent. And with the co complex societies and the issues that our commanders face and the time pressures and pressures of instantaneous media coverage, uh, it's, it's a challenge. And so to sit and, and expect a, a long-winded answer from your lawyer is not what they're looking for. Uh, they need practical advice. But you have to have, the, obviously, the confidence and, and then courage and I've been in those scenarios, thankfully not that many times because we were always able to work it out where you have to say to the commander, 
Sir, you cannot do it that way. The law does not allow you to do it that way. However, here's another legal option for you. And that usually uh, gets you to where you need to go. Great. But so, so are there any tips and tricks or any lessons learned or recommendations that you could, you know, for, from your broad experience, from your tricky situations also that, that could be helpful for young or now practitioners? Absolutely. I mean, uh, obviously when you're younger, you're still, you're, you're learning yourself. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a challenge to make sure you've got the competencies, competencies, number one, and that's your responsibility, but also the systems. We have to make sure we design good, uh, basic legal training programs for our new lawyers to make sure they got those skill sets. Then we also like the military because we're part of the military, have to work on leadership skills. And that means getting the courage and confidence uh, to deal with the tough issues under very crisis-driven, stressful circumstances. So what I would recommend is obviously, you know, to every legal advisor, potential legal advisors, is obviously know your technical side, um, whether it's domestic law, international law, those, those are a given. But then work closely, work with your, your senior legal advisors, other senior uh, military people that you will interact with. Uh, I learned a ton of information about leadership just by deploying, even though I'm not the, the leader in terms of the infantry battalion or on board a ship, but I was there every moment when I saw leaders interact and you learn and you learn how they, their, their mindset and their, and their emotional reactions are often uh, predictable in that sense as well. So the, 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 th the key thing is make sure you have your competencies uh, and your confidence in that and then work within it. As I said, know the business of your client. Make sure that you know it so that you can both assist and obviously where appropriate, challenge. Because uh, the first thing uh, a, sen a senior seasoned military operator will do, they'll, they'll call your bluff. Uh, do you really know my business or not? Um, and when you can show that you actually do, you know your business. And that again, that becomes, like I said, you're part of the profession of arms. Uh, so that means you're not just a technocrat, if I could use that term to provide legal advice, you're a legal officer. Um, and so the young people that we try to recruit, uh, we're, we're appealing obviously to that ability to do those two professions, the law and the arms. And also ultimately, in, in a very broader sense, uh, you, you call upon those people to understand the importance of, again, service to your country. Uh, because that makes the, the difference in a many of those moments of, of t t stressfulness and crisis driven when everybody knows everybody is credible and you're on the same team. So that's all we have now for today's episode. Thank you to Ambassador Philip Griffiths for joining us along with Mr. Tobias Vesner and retired Major General Blaise Cathcart. Listen to us again next week to hear all the latest insights on international peace and security. Subscribe to our podcast channel on Apple iTunes and follow us on Spotify and SoundCloud. Bye for now.